going to read today from the book of Daniel, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 30 and 45 to 49. It's Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me, what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me the gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I'm certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me the misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and opposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with them. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers, You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me 
what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dreams mean. The king asked Daniel, also called Belthazar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Verse 45. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Thank you, David. That was epic. Great. Uh, well, I really enjoy these uh, summer central evenings. Um, if you don't know me, I'm, I'm Stuart, but um, uh, I think I know most of you. Um, but uh, I really enjoy these summer central evenings in August because we get to kind of dig in a little bit um, into, into God's word. And this August, we're looking at the book of Daniel. Who, who was here last week for our part one of Daniel? Okay, about half, maybe a few more. Um, so yeah, we've got four sessions in the book of Daniel, and um, the book of Daniel, I think it's a great book for Christians to be reading today. Um, I'm not implying there are any other books of the Bible that aren't great to be reading today, um, but I think it's particularly relevant to us today, because at the heart of the book of Daniel, there is this, there is this really interesting question, which is um, the question of can, can you 
Can you be a follower of God and live in a godless society, in a pagan society, and still be successful? Can, can, you, can you be faithful and yet live in a, in, in a godless society and still be kind of successful? Is that possible? And of course, uh, you know, it's exploring this question some 600 BC through the character of Daniel. But that is still a very relevant question for us today. You know, in, in, in Britain today, when we are surrounded uh, by a government, maybe by bosses, by our neighbors, by many of our family, family members who don't share our faith, um, the question is, um, how are we going to live lives, uh, not only faithfully, but even more than that, how are we going to live lives that shine? Is it possible to do that without getting our teeth kicked in? Is it possible to really take part and live uh, shining lives for, for Jesus uh, in a secular society and succeed? And um, I think the answer in the book of Daniel is yes, we can. But uh, Daniel poses a troubling example for us because he's also quite challenging. And uh, I think the book of Daniel uh, challenges us that if we're going to succeed living faithful lives in a, faithful, a faithless society, it's going to take some faithful improvisation. We're going to have to think on our feet as we go. We're going to have to work out, uh, work out as we go. There isn't a blueprint for exactly how we live as Christians in 21st century Britain. But there are some key principles that we can apply, key biblical principles. The first one last week is that we have to begin by deciding whom we follow, deciding where our fundamental allegiance lies. We're going to totally have, we won't have got out of the blocks until we've decided in our hearts who our king is. And Daniel decides in chapter one that when it really came down to it, even if it cost him his life, he was going to follow Yahweh. But the second principle which we're going to look at today from chapter 2 is the principle of making space for God to be the hero in our everyday life. Making space for God to be the hero. So you just pray with me quickly as we, before we come to the passage. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful um, man who knew you, uh, Daniel and his friends. Thank you for the example that they give us of living for you. And Lord, more than just hiding away and living for you, Lord, these were men who shone for you, who stood out for you, and whom you protected and blessed. And Lord, we would love to learn from your word and love to learn from them. Would you make us a little bit more like Daniel and his friends? Would you teach us how to live faithfully? among those who don't know you. Amen. Great. Well, um, let's take a look at the passage, chapter 2. It's probably worth um, having open there. Um, here's, my, here's, here's a bit of a summary. So, okay, it begins with a king. There's a king. That's great. That's the beginning of very many good stories. Um, and everything seems to be going swimmingly well until suddenly it isn't, and there is a problem. And in this case, the problem is that the king begins to have uber-weird dreams. And he's presumably disinclined to just uh, chalk it up to the fact that he's eaten too much cheese or something like that. 
because he immediately starts becoming extremely paranoid about these dreams and paranoid about finding out what the meaning of his dreams is. So all the king's horses and all the king's men uh, get called in before uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And um, yeah, they're asked to interpret his dream. Now, uh, back then, you know, interpreting dreams apparently was quite standard fare for your average magician. So, uh, you know, they don't seem that fussed initially, you know, as they call it. Great, yes, tell us the dream. Fantastic, we'll do that. I mean, great, I don't know how you do that, but anyway. Um, but it appears that somewhere along the line, uh, old Nebi has picked up a, a cynicism, a chip on the shoulder, shall we say, about disingenuous dream interpretation. Because, um, you know, I don't know why, maybe he had a bad experience at a psychic fair as a child. We will, we'll never know the backstory. Um, but anyway, he says to them, look, um, I can't be sure, how can I be sure that if I tell you my dream, you aren't just going to say abracadabra and then make up an interpretation, you know, because that's what I would do. How can I be sure that you aren't going to do that? And so actually, to prove that you're telling me the genuine interpretation, you can actually interpret dreams, and that you prove that you're not shams, what I want you to do is to first start by telling me what the dream was that I had in the first place. Now, apparently, this is uh, not standard fare for your average magician. And I think the uh, threat of being impaled on a spike and having your house dissembled into rubble uh, obviously got them in a bit of a spin. Um, so, um, you know, you can think that, you can imagine why, though. Uh, imagine me going along to my local fair, um, you know, and then, uh, oh, you know, I'm going to go up to the palm reader and, uh, you know, oh, hi, you know, I'd love to get my palm read. That'd be great. Um, can you draw my palm first? <laughs> That's uh, certainly, um, yeah, I think it'd be, you know, it's unreasonable. Um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so they protest. It's impossible, they say. It's never been done before. No one's ever asked this uh, of, of us before. Um, and then comes the setup line for the whole story. You might have noticed it in verse 11. Stands out. No one, they say, no one could do this except a God. And the gods don't live among men. No one could do this except a God. And the gods don't live among men. Now, up to this point, the story has taken a familiar tack. Um, we kind of recognize, even, even as moderns, we understand this kind of uh, general trajectory to a story. We can, you know, Mission Impossible and James Bond films all follow the same track. You know, first everything's going swimmingly, then, then something terrible happens, and then there's a good period of the story where the impossible, unthinkable mission is set out. No one could do this. Normally there's a few scenes where someone high-ranking says, no one could do this. It's impossible. You couldn't. And then Steven Seagal walks in and he's the only one who can, who can complete the impossible mission. You know? So we're expecting that at this point in the, in the story, having, you know, no one can do this. This is the impossible. We're expecting, what we're expecting, the hero to swoop in. Daniel, presumably, is going to come and solve the king's problem. The hero of the story. Except it doesn't really happen that way. Daniel doesn't really turn out to be the hero of this story. He, we would expect that the rest of the story is, is an astounding 
story of how Daniel uses his intellect or his political skills or, or something or outwits someone or, or we don't know what, but we expect Daniel to step into the breach and solve this problem and be the hero. But in fact, what's really striking about this story is that instead, Daniel succeeds by making space for God to be the hero in this story. And here's the key thing I I think this chapter would say to us. If we think that um, trying to live faithful lives for Jesus in uh, around our friends and family and workplace, uh, workplaces. Or if we think that trying to share our faith with, you know, be missional lights for Jesus uh, amongst our friends and family is an opportunity for us to be the hero, then we've missed the point. We've missed the point. Not only will we fail, but we've, we've missed the irony of what we're trying to do. Our message Our message when we tell it is about a God who is the hero instead of us. The gospel is the gospel about the God who stepped in to do the impossible on behalf of us. And I want to challenge us that if that is our message, it should also be our method. It should also be the way that we live our lives. People should not only hear the message of God who is the hero, but also see it in the way we live. And this is a recurrent theme about how Daniel lives out his faith in a secular workplace. He consistently makes space for God to be present and to intervene. And um, I want to pick out three things that Daniel does that we could all do that would help us make space for God to be the hero in everyday life. And those three things which Daniel does in this passage are expect, pray, and point. Expect, pray, and point. The first of those is expect. Expect. And it it strikes me as I read this story um, that one of the significant things is is Daniel's confidence that God might intervene in this situation. I mean, it is a pretty bleak situation, and um, none of the king's advisors genuinely think this is possible. They've all said so multiple times. Uh, And yet, when Daniel is approached by Arioc, the king's officer, telling him what's going on, what does he do? He doesn't give up in despair. He doesn't run and hide. He doesn't fight. He doesn't... What does he do? Verse 16. At this, Daniel went into the king... And ask for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. I just insert the situation uh, into your head from from work recently in which you 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 know you everyone else has said this is not possible, and you walk in and you say, Well, hold on, just give me time. You know, I can do it. Just give me a moment. This is possible. That's what Daniel does. What, why is it? Is it because is it he's one of these uh, insufferable, eternal optimists? You know, you know who I'm thinking about. You know, those are realism-impaired individuals who seem unable to 
uh, grasp when something is genuinely impossible. No, he's not. What sets Daniel apart from everybody else? It's not that he knows a trick that no one else knows. It's that he knows his God. He knows his God. He knows, as he later prays, that his God is the God who has all wisdom and power, who changes times and seasons, who raises up kings and deposes others, and, key, who reveals deep and hidden things to those who ask. That's always a good one to know in a situation like this. And more than just believing that God is a God abstractly like this, oh yes, God is a God who might be able to do these things, he expects that God could be at work in his situation. So here's the first question I'm challenged by from Daniel. Is when you and I think about our strategy for living faithfully among those who aren't Christians around us, um, when we think about our strategy for sharing our faith, does it include space for God to work? Does, is that part of our strategy, to include God in that? It sounds really silly. Here's another way of putting it. How often do you think in everyday situations, oh, maybe God would want to be at work here? And, and especially, I want to sort of say, in, in non-spiritual things. You know, we often say, oh, well, God might bring a sense of peace in this situation, or God might, you know, those kind of things. Maybe we have a bit more confidence for God to do that. But when was the last time there was a, a, a I don't know, a disagreement in the team we're working in, and we thought, oh, maybe this is a situation for God to be at work. Maybe someone brought us a technical problem, you know, that's not solvable, and we thought, ah, well, no one else in my team could do it, but maybe, maybe God could do this. Or um, we chatted to someone, we heard that they had financial issues, or relationship breakdown, and we just thought, oh, well, I don't know what to do about this, but maybe God wants to be at work here. Do we ask often, could God do something here? Or have we set the limits of what we expect just by the boundaries of what everyone else can do and what we think we can do? And I don't ask that, I don't sort of say that to be accusative. I just think it's, we just have to constantly remind ourselves that we believe in a God who can do these things and sometimes does do these things. It's so easy to go on autopilot and find ourselves trying to live lives for God but essentially without God. And Daniel challenges that. So how can we raise our expectations, our day-to-day expectations that God might be at work? A, f- a, few, a few little things. What, I think the key really is reminding ourselves of stories when God does do these things, has done does these things. That's why, I mean, number one's got to be reading the Bible, right? I mean, it's pretty standard, but I think we should all be reading the book of Acts at least once a year, just to remind ourselves the kinds of things that were happening in the early church. You know, God might not do exactly those things, but it's just good to be reminded that in their day-to-day life, God was doing these things. We're reading, we're here studying Daniel. Daniel was reminding us of these things. Another way I find helpful is to read biographies of Christians uh, who have great stories of God being involved in their life. And again, it's not about learning new things that God could do. It's more about keeping ourselves reminded, keeping it in close enough at hand that when the situation comes, it comes to mind. 
one of my favorite biographies, in case you find yourself with a little bit more extra time in the summer. I always tell myself I'm going to have extra time to read in the summer. I never seem to have extra time to read in the summer. But anyway, if you find yourself with a bit more time, why don't you read uh, George Muller's autobiography or biography? He's amazing. A man, who, uh, a man of prayer, but also a man who saw God do lots of amazing things. Um, I recently suggested this to um, the, the guy I was mentoring last year. It's basically a rite of passage for anyone I mentor. They have to read one of um, George Muller's autobiographies. Uh, and um, it was funny, totally unprompted. He came back to me a couple of weeks later and said, oh, I've just loved reading that. You know what I've found? I've just found that I've started uh, coming up to situations in the day and thinking, oh, I know a story when uh, God did something cool in this kind of situation for George Muller. I wonder whether he could do it for me. And it's a very simple thought, isn't it? But I think, you know, we've got to keep these things. So we can read, we can read stories of God working today um, in, in biographies and things like that. Maybe you can share in your groups later your favorite biography to read, and we can hand them around. Another one is just to share our own stories as well. And again, we can do that a bit later. Maybe you've, in the last few weeks or a month, just had a good story of God answering prayer or doing something unexpected at work or showing up for a friend who doesn't know him. Um, it's good to encourage each other not to keep these things silent. I was really encouraged recently. A friend of mine, um, he runs a theological college in Ethiopia. Pretty challenging place to do a lot of things, let alone lead a theological college. And he, um, uh, he's found himself in a difficult position because recently uh, he was um, just teaching there and then the person who was leading it left. And he's found himself lead, leading the college. And he's, we're good friends and we're just, he was just sharing with me some of his prayer life. And he was saying, I, I was saying to God, Lord, I don't think I can do this. You know, I can't lead the college. Um, I feel like there's bits of it I can do. I feel like I can teach. But there are some bits I just can't do, like um, raising money. So they raise a lot of money for um, the uh, students. They do have uh, individual kind of bursaries for the students because many of the students are refugees, can't pay for their fees. So he's just saying to God, Lord, if you want me to lead this, then please will you show me that and speak to me? And will you show me that by providing some money for some students? That would be a good way to show me you're going to back me up on this. And then the next day, he got an envelope put into his hand, and he opened it up. I think it was at a meeting somewhere, and he opened it up, and it just had uh, £100 and a, a little thing that said, uh, it said, four student scholarships. And I tell you, what, I was just encouraged by hearing that story. He just shared that with me. Those don't come up that often, but I was encouraged. And I'll tell you what else changed. The next morning, I was having my quiet time, and I was thinking, oh, Lord, thank you, for, thank you for that, doing that for Chris. That's really awesome. And then I was thinking, hey, what have I not asked you for that I really just want to ask you for? Like, what could you, where do you want to show up? And so I, I, I just want to encourage us. Where are our expectation levels? Where are our day-to-day -day expectation levels that God might act? Maybe we need to get some more stories into our system to remind ourselves, keep ourselves uh, expectant. That's the first thing that Daniel does that I often don't do. He expected God to be at work. Number two is he prayed. He prayed. See, Daniel had this confidence, even an expectancy, that God might intervene 
in his situation. But the result isn't that he kicks back, chills out, makes himself a cocktail, and it's just like, yeah, well, God's going to do it. That's awesome. I'm just going to sit here. No, we read in verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house, explained the matter to his friends. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. He prays and he gets his friends around him to pray. Um, I've just been challenged about, about the role of prayer in everything that we do recently. We had to study, say had, it's a great job I've got. Had to study Romans 8 um, because we were doing it with the students about a term ago. And something really struck me about Romans 8. So one of my favorite passages in the Bible is just full of confidence that God's going to do, finish his work, his love for us. It's a really cool passage. But something struck me that I hadn't seen before. In Romans 8, Paul talks about this amazing confidence on the one hand we have. God's power. He's going to finish the work he started, his love for us. And then on the other hand, he acknowledges the brokenness that we live in, the suffering of the world, groaning. It's like, but we don't see this yet. And uh, we're, we're waiting for that to come. And, uh, you know, we're groaning. And uh, it's like this confidence. And then there's this groaning. It's like, how does he fit those together? I'd never noticed till I studied it last time. that At the end, the way he puts those two things together, the confidence, the expectancy, and the kind of what is prayer. He ends by talking about prayer. For Paul, prayer is the thing that stands in the gap between expectancy and what we see. It's not just just complacency. There's a world of difference between complacency, godly complacency. Yeah, God might do it. He could do it. And and, uh, expectancy. And it's praying. And it's just a challenge for us, you know. Does our mission strategy for living faithfully among those who don't know Jesus, is our mission strategy for God getting the glory, for sharing, God being seen and, and things like that, is our mission strategy part of it prayer? Or is our prayer just reactionary? Do we just pray when things happen? Or if we plan prayer in? Because Daniel expected, but he also prayed. When was the last time we asked God for something? We can't just live faithfully for God, as I said before, without the help of God. And this is not just a story of Daniel being the hero. It's a story of him getting down on his knees and asking God to be the hero. The final thing that Daniel does is he points. He points. And I actually think that this is the one I often forget. It's like the other two I kind of have heard enough sermons about to kind of know that at least I should be doing. But I forget to do this one thing, point. Because Daniel doesn't just expect God to work, and he doesn't just pray. But also, when God does move, Daniel goes out of his way to give God the credit for what he's done. That's so important. He goes out of his way to give God the credit. First of all, we see that Daniel gives God the credit privately. So we read in verses 21 and 23, that he goes immediately, the first thing he does. I mean, it's not necessarily the first thing I would have done. I would have gone like trumping into the, into the throne room. Yes, look at me. No, but the first place he goes is back to the Lord. And he praises God and he thanks him. We read there, he says, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. 
It's like, it's like he's determined to start by just acknowledging before God where this has come from. He knows that this has not come by his own power and he takes it back to God and glorifies him. I wonder how good are we at giving God the credit for the things that he does among us when he answers our prayers. Is thanks a regular part of our prayer life? I've been really kind of a bit challenged about this recently, so I've taken up a bit of a personal challenge recently, which is that, I mean, I'm reasonably good at praying for things, and sometimes I'm quite good at praying for things for quite a long time, but I realized I was really bad at just, I don't know, I was like, I was being robbed of the opportunity to praise God for these things because I just forgot when God did something and I moved on to the next prayer. So I kind of said to myself, okay, I'm going to try and thank God for as many days as I pray for something, I'm going to thank God for it on the other side if I get it. So if it's just a week, seven days I pray for it, then I'll just thank God for it seven days on the other side. If it's a couple of weeks, then it's a couple of, if it's a month, then thank God for a month on the other side. Well, I'll tell you what, my, my thanks have gone up rapidly because actually I'm realizing God answers a lot of things that I, I've asked for and I just forget about it. And also, it's a great way to start before you start asking for things for today with a whole list of things that he's done yesterday. It just builds my expectation. But also, it's about coming back and remind myself, oh yeah, that didn't just happen. It wasn't just me that worked that out. It didn't, the situation didn't just solve itself. God, you intervened and I'm going to give you the credit. But Daniel doesn't just stop um, at giving the, God the credit privately. He also acknowledges publicly before the king what God has done. And in fact, I think this is probably the most, not most noticeable thing about Daniel in this whole passage. Daniel goes out of his way to tell the king that he isn't the hero here. He, he, in verse 27, he tells the king, Look, no, no wise man or enchanter could do this, what you've requested. And then he doesn't go, except me. Da-da. No, he doesn't. He just continues. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And again, he says it twice. Verse 30, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have any greater wisdom than anybody else. In other words, it's God's been at work here. And this must have taken real resolve for Daniel. I don't know whether you've been in a situation where maybe you have been praying for someone, a family member who doesn't know the Lord, and you've been praying for it, and then God's done something, and you're like, yes, oh, great. I'm not going to tell them that, that I was praying for that. So he's like, oh, uh. or, or, you know, in, we're so, it's hard, isn't it? But Daniel chooses, he chooses to do that. Nobody knew where Daniel's knowledge came from. No one else acknowledged Yahweh. It would have been so easy for him just to go, ah, oh, yeah, thanks for the praise, that's great. Great that it worked out and we didn't get executed. He isn't happy to see God at work and take the credit. He refuses to take credit for what God has done. And actually, this is one of the hallmarks of Daniel's ministry. And I wonder whether it is the reason why God did so much through him. God did so many amazing things around him and through him. Because he, God knew that if he worked through Daniel, he would get the credit. Daniel was not going to take the credit. I wonder if we made a pact with God and said, if you 
do a work. If I expect, pray, and see it happen, if you do work, I will give you the credit amongst my friends and family who don't know you. I'll point it out. I wonder whether God would do more through us if we made a pact with God to do that. Because what's the result at the end of this story? It's that Nebuchadnezzar is praising, he's praising God, not Daniel. I know there's a bit of a weird thing about him offering things to Daniel, but that's probably because Daniel's the representative of Yahweh. And then he goes on in verse 47 to say, Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. That's the result. God gets praised. So the first principle from Daniel was he, he, put a, he put his stake in the sand. He flew his flag right from the beginning saying, I follow Jesus. His second principle we see him living out again and again is that he consistently makes space for God to be the hero in, in his situations. Will we expect God to be at work in things that no one else can do in our everyday life? Would we be willing to take the risk of telling our non-Christian friends and family that we know a God who can do what no one else can do? You know, that's the scary thing. We don't have to promise that God will do that thing. We don't know whether God will do that thing. Daniel didn't know whether God was going to do that. But we can say, like Daniel, I know a God in heaven who can do that. I will pray. Give me time to pray. And then, will we pray? Will we be asking God to do things, practical things that might reveal, God, what do you want to do amongst these people that might give you glory? Something they might go, wow, that's a talking point. Let's talk about what happened there. And will we have the courage and the humility to stand up and point and say, when God acts, my God did that. By the way, if you'd like to talk more, I'm free on, insert time, you're free. Because I do think that if we, if we make space for God to be at work and we make sure that he gets the glory when he does, God wants to do more through us than he's currently doing. So let's, let's pray. Lord, I do want to thank you that um, you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You're the same God who did this for Daniel, as we see you did it in the early church, as we hear stories of you doing it um, around us, and some of us have seen it. And we just want to ask that you would put it on our heart again, an expectation, a hope, and a prayer that you'd be at work that your name would be lifted up. Lord, I thank you that you have not asked us to be the heroes. You've not asked us to be superhuman. You've not asked us to solve riddles we can't solve, interpret dreams we can't interpret, but you do offer your presence to us. And we pray that you'd give us the courage to look and wait and pray. And would you give us great stories of you getting the glory amongst our friends and family. Amen. Great. Um, so, what's the time?
great. So uh, 